Well, hello, and welcome to the main EMS fireside chat with Don and Matt. I believe this is episode eight, if I'm correct. I think that's right. We have uh, eight, or excuse me, seven prior episodes in the main EMS fireside chat uh, section of iTunes. Please go to iTunes if you're interested in looking at those. We have some good information that started back about a year ago. And uh, our goal... Actually, it was a year ago this month. Oh, it was a year ago this month. Our goal has been to try to get... Uh, one of these done a month, although we've been averaging, a, as you can tell, a little bit less than that. Part of that is just the newness of the process, but Don and I are committed to continue to try and bring these to you. And for those of you who have been listening all along, we really appreciate that. Please remember to send um, us comments. Uh, we have opted to use Don's email inbox, as mine gets pretty busy sometimes. Uh, but please send your comments to us along with your questions or your suggestions about other topics. And um, uh, we'd love to get those uh, out to you, back to you as soon as possible. Of course, you can always put comments in the evaluation tool on MemZ when you go to do your quiz. Um, I actually do read those. That's been a place where I've pulled some of our FAQs from. I've tried to actually answer some of the questions for people. Now, that being said, if you pose a question within the evaluation, it's an anonymous tool, so I can't address it back to you directly. So sometimes I try to bring that question back here. Um, even if it's just a, a kind of a brief answer, sometimes uh, that's the limitation of using the evaluation tool. So like Matt said, this is uh, episode eight, and this is going to be our first all BLS review. We, we acknowledge that we often tend to be a little bit ALS heavy, and we've, seen, we've had some requests from BLS providers that maybe we do an all BLS review here. And I think that this is, uh, Matt and I were talking before we started recording, that this is a really interesting time where there's actually some pretty significant changes uh, related to BLS care that are that have been coming, and I think we're going to continue to see develop uh, over the over the near future. So this is uh, it seemed like a natural time for us to put this podcast together. Yeah, there are some uh, either reaffirmation of some standard BLS techniques and their value and importance in EMS. Uh, there's some we're learning more about other techniques uh, that we may have had in main EMS, but not always across the nation, or not and not always in main EMS. And then finally, there are some major sea changes about to occur in some things that we've considered dogma. And we want to touch base with you about all those things. There's really three topics we want to bring to you. We want to talk a little bit about BLS airway management and skills, techniques, and considerations. Uh, We want to talk to you about tourniquets and hemostatic agents. And then finally, we want to just start a very high-level conversation about the spine and management of the spine or the potentially spine-injured patient. Before we get into that, Don, any other items, any FAQs or updates that we should uh, let folks know about? I think it'd probably be good to uh, let folks know what the MDPB is looking at in the coming months. Uh, if, that way, if they want to attend meetings or get involved in a potential topic that you guys are talking oh, about, fantastic. I think it'd be yeah. good. So uh, what do you guys have coming up? Well, we have a couple of things coming up. It is the time of the year where, uh, or the time of the protocol cycle where we're going to be beginning our process. Um, we have recently had a retreat and while we had hoped to spend some of that retreat talking about what the process will be this time around, uh, we had a lot of other items. But we're going to be discussing that process in March of 2014, and we'll be trying to begin to map out a workflow for the 2015 protocol update. So uh, once we've done that, please, um, or after the March meeting, please reach out to either your regional offices or your regional websites or reach out to the main EMS website We'll have a pretty, um, hopefully, uh, detailed outline of what sections of the protocols we'll be 
managed by which medical director and what time of the year we'll be going over those things. And what I would ask of you is if you're interested in the process, if you want to uh, be a part of the process, or if you have ideas regarding the process, please let the assigned medical director know your ideas at least one month before that section uh, is up for review. And, uh, and then attend the meetings if you're interested. We, uh, while the voting body of the MDPB are the medical directors, we take input from all stakeholders, and that includes all the folks who are reading this, as well as our hospital colleagues. They're, they're all of, everyone is an important piece of this process. And we really do encourage working through the regions and working through the medical director who is running or um, managing that section to bring those things to us. We've got a lot of good ideas from folks who reviewed the final product last time around. Uh, and uh, the final product is, you can imagine, difficult to get something new into a final draft. Um, uh, we really want people to get in touch with us early so we can take your good ideas and incorporate them moving forward. So that's one thing we've got going on. That'll be starting up and then um, uh, coming to you soon in 2015. It's, uh, it's interesting, Don. We feel like we just finished this, and we're going to be starting it up again. But I think the reality is that medicine changes, and it's changing increasingly rapidly. And the, some of the stuff we're going to talk about today, it's just, it would just be, uh, it wouldn't be good medicine to wait longer than we have to for this protocol process to get this stuff it's, out to you. It's interesting that we're going to talk about spinal management today, and it was actually, what, literally a month or two after we were ending the protocol process that some new information was coming out, and uh, NAEMSP actually put a position paper, started putting a position paper together right after the protocol is finished uh, in, for the 2013 update. Yeah, you know, one of, the, one of the, the stimulating things about medicine is that we are learning all the time. One of the frustrating things about medicine is that we're learning all the time. I think the something on the order of, it's tens of thousands of articles are published on a, you know, I think it's a monthly or daily basis. It's a lot of articles in medicine. We try our best to keep in, uh, keep on top of all of that. But it, you're right. It, you know, our protocols went live on December 1st this year. NAMSP published their uh, recommendations for spine management. That's kind of a compilation of a lot of literature that had been slowly trickling out. Um, but that's that's sort of a in that that paper, which we'll get it to in a little while, is the compilation of that as well as some expert opinion from the NAEMSP and the American College of Surgeons Committee of, on Trauma. And for folks who don't know what NAEMSP is, that's the National Association of EMS Physicians. Ends up being the, uh, I guess, the brother or sister or partner to NAEMT um, that many of you probably belong to. Um, but anyway, yeah, so uh, those are some of the things that are going to be going on. Um, and uh, that's our process moving forward. We'll have more information for you and more of the details, but just know that if you want to be involved, please uh, reach out to the assigned medical director that's managing the section that you're interested in commenting on. And always remember that you're more than willing, wel- welcome to come to the MDPB meetings. We actually encourage providers to come. We really value your input in this process as end users. And know always that our goals are to take the best care of, pa- of patients um, with our protocols, but the MDPB knows that the only way to do that is to resource you, the provider, excellently, and so we need your input in order to do that. So just briefly from the education side of the house, beginning of this year, I actually updated our software that we use to publish our products to MEMS Ed, and this has 
fixed our problem with Internet Explorer, which is fantastic since a lot of people still use that. The downside is there are, it requires the update of some other software. So I just want to take a second and chat about that. If you're having problems accessing or having uh, programs load from Memzed, the number one problem that exists right now is uh, Adobe Flash Player. So making sure that you go through the process of making sure that, that updates. Um, if you don't know how to do that, there's actually an FAQ posted to the FAQs in our on our website that can walk you through that process. Check that. And then the other piece is sometimes the load times are slow. We apologize for that, but please be patient. Uh, sometimes it can actually take up to about two minutes for some of the programs to load. We don't have a super power, powerful uh, server that that's sitting on right now but we're working to try to improve that process as well. So other than that, I think it's time. Uh, you want to start out with the spinal management? Why don't we go AB and then spine? How's that? AB then spine? Yeah. Okay. Airway bleeding and spine. Airway bleeding and spine. Okay. Yeah. We're going to substitute <laughs> B here. ACS. How's that? <laughs> okay. We can do that. All right. So we'll start out with airway. And, and we want to touch upon a, a, a few things around airway management and specific to, to uh, BLS providers and really actually ALS providers is that one of the big things that we've been talking about over the last couple of years is, is really specific to cardiac arrest management. And a lot of the airway changes that we've seen come around of, we used to say that intubation was the most important thing. Then we kind of backed off and said, well, maybe we shouldn't be intubating everybody, but let's use LMAs or Kings or combi tubes. And then there's been some, there was a piece of literature that put out that said, well, maybe this isn't the best thing. So we've kind of backed off from that a little bit. And yeah. recent studies show that really as long as you're providing good ventilation um, and that you're managing the airway in an effective manner, that maybe sticking to a BLS management may be as good as any of the other processes. Yeah, and I, I, think, you're, I think the spirit of what you're saying is correct. I, 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 uh, I heard... Someone quoted the Dalai Lama. I don't know if this is really the Dalai Lama, but the Dalai Lama, according to this person, said something to the effect of, no matter what your religion, practice it excellently. And I think when it comes to cardiac arrest, airway management, that's probably the message that we know from the literature right now. The bottom line is that there was a huge trial, a study rather, it's a retrospective database review out of Japan with some somewhere in the hundreds of thousands of patients that looked at survival and then looked at survival based on the way the airway was managed. Now, the thing that you need to know about this type of study is there, this is this is looking for causality, but is only able to find association. And the difference of those things meaning that, the, that uh, therapy A caused the outcome or that therapy A was associated but has no causality to the outcome. And there's a difference there. And the best we can get from this is that it's really, an, there's an association but not a cause. But the bottom line is that Patients who had their airways managed basically had a better survival than those who had an ET tube, and the ET tube and the the folks with the basic airway measures had a better survival than the folks who had a combi tube or, or what we call an extraglottic device. Now, why is this? There's a lot of speculation about why this is. Bottom line is we don't quite know in the literature. Some wonder about... Um, the extraglottic devices and this concept of internal tamponade on the carotid artery limiting blood flow. I don't know if that's the case. That's been one of the things that's been passed around. Um, but what I think we can tell from the literature is that we don't know the best way to manage the airway. And what we do know, and the, the, the absolutes here, 
are that we need to minimize the no-flow state in preference to the low-flow state, meaning that chest compressions should be done immediately and they should be done excellently, excellently defined as the right rate, the right depth, the right amount of recoil, all those things. Um, and, um, uh, and that independent of that and early defibrillation, there aren't a lot of things we know that really change the mortality benefit in these patients. So I think what that means to us, the bottom line is we don't have superiority data that, or we don't have causal superiority to that data. And I think what that means to us is that we, are, we can manage these airways with basic techniques. But if you are going to employ basic techniques, we need to do that excellently, right? So no matter what your religion, practice it excellently. And so what I think we wanted to bring to you today is some tricks of the trade and an idea of how to practice BLS airway techniques excellently. And I think that it's important because these become the foundation for everything that happens. And in many, many cases, these basic techniques, um, which I think the term basic connotes that they're uh, you know, they're, connotes that they're less effective or whatever. But the bottom line is these are effective in meeting our goals. And if you think about the training around the 2011 protocols, we, consider, we were moving away from intubation to airway management. The goals of airway management are oxygenation and ventilation, first and foremost, maybe protection, uh, depending on the patient's needs, but clearly oxygenation and ventilation. And a BVM can do that in many cases. So, Don, let's talk about so, technique. Just briefly before that, where I, yeah, yeah. where I really wanted to touch back to <laughs> oh, this. I took this way offline. Sorry it, no, 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 no. <laughs> this was all good. This was good. You didn't, you didn't go way offline because you, you kind of drove home where I was really going with this is that in many of the patients we see, including cardiac arrest, which we spent a lot of time talking about, a basic airway maneuver can suffice to actually manage that patient and is, can be just as effective and, and at times more appropriate to manage an airway. Yeah. So it's really important that as a BLS provider, you have really strong airway technique. Yeah, I so think, I think about the yeah. cardiac arrest. Earlier we talked about the potential overdose patient who maybe needs some... Apnea. Yeah. So, who is yeah. apneic, who doesn't necessarily... Most likely we don't want to actually intubate because if an ALS provider comes along and um, chooses to provide Narcan... We don't want to actually have an airway necessarily in place in that, at that mm -hmm. point. So that these are patients who could really benefit from strong airway management from a BLS provider. Yeah. That it's really important as a BLS provider that you have those skills and techniques. And I, I would say that it's I – would, I, would, I agree with everything you, you just mentioned. I would add, though, that it's also essential that an ALS provider has these skills and techniques. In fact, yes. this should be the foundation for all of our, uh, our airway management, independent of your scope of practice – because it may be the preferred means of airway management. And you mentioned two clinical situations. I'll add on a third, which is pediatrics. And I think mm -hmm. we're, we have uh, a lot of good, we have some good evidence um, to suggest that a BVM with an OPA or MPA properly placed and properly used is probably superior in certain situations to any other type of airway management. And so I think that it, you mentioned the BLS need for this. I think it's, it's cr equally critical for an ALS provider yes. to have this skill set. So while we brought this up under the auspices of BLS-only review, this really becomes an EMS-all <laughs> review. It, it absolutely because does. Because everyone needs to do this, right? And, so. and I think, I think you, you hit it perfectly. This, this should really be – everything we talk about today should actually be the foundation of care. And it's really important to remember that BLS yeah. is the foundation of EMS care and that if B 
BLS care gets us to where we want, whether it be airway management or anything else, then maybe that's the right place yeah. to stop sometimes. And, and, and the bottom, yeah, I think you're exactly right. The bottom line is that this may not be the beginning. This might be the end. <laughs> very good. Very, very in, some well. of the, in some of these situations, you may not need to go further, hopefully. So, all right. So let's talk about technique. Let's talk about what uh, what makes what, what makes these basic maneuvers excellent. How are, what are some of the tricks of the trade, Don, that we can implore employ rather to um, make these basic techniques work and become successful? So there's a few things to look at. We want to talk about positioning the patient properly. I think we need to talk about using appropriate airway adjuncts, both NPAs and OPAs, and notice I say both, Mm. um, that we can employ multiple devices to actually help improve that. And then I think it's also talking about creating a proper seal and the technique for doing that, as well as the proper rate and um, volume volume yeah. um, based upon your patient. So I think starting first with the p- position, because that's where we're really going to begin this process, is I think all of us have been taught this, this theory of we lay our patient down, we tilt their head back. And I think through more work with anesthesiologists and some of the more, liter- the more literature that keeps coming out about actually providing ALS airway management, I think that we know that when we talk about the sniffing position, it's not laying flat with your head tilted back. And the reality is that sometimes actually elevating the head a little bit to help open that airway can actually be appropriate when you're trying to align the airway. Mm -hmm. Keeping that in mind, that if the person has a pillow under their head and you kind of pad there to actually open that airway a little bit, that may be a technique to help you open their airway a little bit. Moving on to some airway adjuncts, I think it's really important to remember that we have these devices for a reason. And And I think that a lot of us were taught at times that these kind of took a back seat, that if you could ventilate the patient without one, then so be it. Go for it. But I think the reality is they're there for a reason. I think looking at properly sizing our OPAs and then using those in, in conjuncture with an NPA or two NPAs, um, that we can actually open these airways even more and provide the best ventilation to these patients possible while trying to reduce um, gastric insufflation. Utilizing these devices becomes really important. Remember that you have them. It's part of your toolbox. Remember to reach in, grab those tools, and use them. Seal of a mask becomes a really big challenge for all of us. Uh, I know me personally, I'm fortunate. I have fairly large hands. It's pretty easy for me to actually get a seal around the mask and and actually get a hold of the patient's jaw and and keep everything in place. Yeah, they're... they're... But I think think that being said, I I don't know that I'm necessarily the norm in EMS. I think about... um, Actually, my wife, who's an EMS provider, has smaller hands than I do and can, and can struggle to actually have a good seal on the mask and be able to actually open the airway. Um, smaller providers, male or female, can have this challenge. And, I, and I've seen it numerous times when teaching classes of um, people trying to perform one-person bag, ma- bag mask ventilation. And, and I think one of the things we can really focus on is the fact that that's actually not the ideal situation, that if you have the resources – Airway management really should be a team sport, um, whether it's simply providing bag, bag valve mask ventilation or whether you're preparing for an intubation. It doesn't matter. This is something that we should do as a team. And if you can have one person maintain that seal, and I realize that we were all taught the CE clamp or the two-handed CE clamp, here's what I'm going to tell you. If you can get a seal with that mask and get that airway open, I don't think anyone's really going to care necessarily whether it's the classic CE clamp, whether you put your thumbs down on the mask and grab the back of the jaw with your fingers to do a modified jaw thrust. I don't think it really matters as long as you're achieving the goal of getting air into that patient. 
And I think that becomes the, the key part here that remember we have goals whenever we manage an airway. And the goals are, again, oxygenation followed by ventilation and then protection, right? And uh, if you establish a therapy that is intended to achieve your goals, our duty then is to reevaluate on a regular basis and make sure our goals remain, remain um, met. And so part of this airway management is not just the technique, it's knowing how to apply the technique and knowing, to, knowing how to uh, judge if the technique is successful. So then as part of that, if you're maintaining that seal and you have the resources to have somebody else squeeze the bag, then that's actually a great way to actually, you can focus on one piece of this and they can focus on another. And that gets us to where we start talking about volume. Well, let me ask you a question sure. before you get there. Say that you had enough resources. Where would you want your most experienced provider in making the seal or pressing the bag? Probably actually want them maintaining the seal yeah. for me. I, you know, it just occurred to me, too, that that's probably the technologically or the, the, the muscle memory piece that's hardest here. And maybe putting your more experienced person on the harder task while the less experienced person, under the guidance of the experienced person, is ventilating them. And when we talk about ventilation, we really want to talk about proper volume and proper rate. And I think another piece that's often overlooked, is, let me pose a question to you. Oh, touche. <laughs> in, in your normal physiologic process of breathing in and out, mm-hmm. is inhalation a positive or negative pressure process? Oh, that's a great question. Let's think about this. So I'm breathing in right now. My diaphragm is uh, is pulling down. My intercostals are engaged. And what's happening are that my lungs are expanding, but they're expanding inside my thorax because of the negative pressure that the musculature around my chest and in my diaphragm makes. So I am, when I breathe in, making a negative uh, thoracic space. When I breathe out, I'm creating a positive thoracic pressure, and that's all in relative nature to the ambient environment around me. So again, when I breathe in, inside my chest is negative pressure compared to the outside world. When I breathe out, the inside of my chest is a positive pressure in comparison to the outside world. This is a really, really important piece of, of information to keep in the back of your mind when you're actually performing bag bag valve mask ventilation is you're actually doing the reverse of the natural physiology. You're mm-hmm. actually creating a positive pressure to ventilate that patient. And when we do that, there are physiologic effects potentially on the heart, and that can have uh, untoward effects when we're trying to treat these patients. So let me get this right. So the way that we breathe could affect the heart? Walk me through that a little bit. When we talk about this, if, if we have a small patient and we're putting a lot of air into them, more than they normally would have, we could put, be putting excess pressure on that on the heart and actually decreasing cardiac return. Ah, so let me walk this through my head to make sure I have okay. it Okay. So we're increasing the intrathoracic pressure. Yep. Blood has to get back to the heart through the thorax. So I'm theoretically, when I increase the pressure in the thorax, I'm decreasing the cardiac return or what's also known as the cardiac preload decreases. And what we know about cardiac output is that it's got a couple different factors that affect it, one of them being cardiac preload. So I get it. So more pressure inside the thorax means less blood flow to the heart. There is absolutely that potential and likelihood even. And I Well, it occurs to me that it probably doesn't it probably that's an important thing to think of especially in a few populations such as the cardiac arrest patient. Absolutely. Potentially even more so in the 
post-ROSC patient who's really sensitive to these changes. Yeah, yeah. So, so that gets us to this conversation of volume and rate in the cardiac arrest patient. The, and the idea is that, yeah. In all patients, not just yeah, cardiac arrest. But, spe- but especially the cardiac yes. arrest. Maybe, maybe we'll use them as, a, as, the, uh, as the model here. So in cardiac arrest, uh, patients' uh, heart either stops beating if they go into asystole or stops beating effectively if they're in, uh, or I guess it's really quivering in VF and, and, and VT. Um, but regardless, you're, you're having no cardiac output. Uh, our, our goals of uh, cardiac arrest care are to create cardiac output, and we can go from a no-flow state to a low-flow state if we apply chest compressions effectively. Now, the problem is if we apply chest cr- compressions effectively and we're able to create cardiac output, but then we increase intrathoracic pressure, decreasing cardiac preload, and therefore decreasing cardiac output, we've just obliterated the benefit of our cardiac output that we work so hard to achieve in our chest compressions. And so the key here is to be very diligent about our rate of ventilations, which should probably be around 10, no less than 8, no more than 12 in a minute. And we should also be pretty careful with the volume that we uh, insufflate these patients with. Because remember, we don't need to give them full tidal volumes in, in these cases. So we can balance the benefit of oxygenation and ventilation with the benefit of forward flow uh, and, and cardiac output in these cases. So what would be a good gauge or what would be a good amount of volume to give? Uh, I typically, with all patients, uh, stop if I see chest rise. Yeah. And I think it's that's kind of a loaded question. I don't think we know the exact answer to that. We know that, you know, um, the normal tidal volume is somewhere in the order of 10 cc's per kilo. We know that in lung-damaged patients like ARDS patients, or, uh, we want to give less than that. And uh, probably want to do the same thing for cardiac arrest patients, although we don't quite know the right uh, answer to this. I think your gauge of letting chest rise is one. Another gauge is to go for somewhere in the order of 400 cc's of tidal volume, which would be, you know, about um, half of what a normal adult would get uh, if you were doing normal tidal volumes. So So with all that being said, I think one of the other pieces that um, you talk about rate and you talk about volume, but I also think talking about the rate that you give that volume or um, how quickly Mm. you actually squeeze the bag, that if you just squeeze it really fast, really hard, you can spike that pressure really qu- the pressure within the chest very quickly. Where if you give kind of, we, we, we teach people that when you squeeze the bag, you kind of do the 1-1,000, 2 squeeze, and you, you count yourself through that process. That ventilation is supposed to be given over that 1-1,000. So it's not just a really quick squeeze it all in there all at once spike that pressure and release is that you want to actually um, give this breath slowly because when I breathe normally do I just go no it's it's a much slower kind of inhalation exhalation I like to think of it as it's a very relaxed process mm. and yeah. we want to try we want to try to keep as close to natural physiology I think as we can yeah and I think we also want to um, reconcile the patient's underlying pathophysiology. And the things that we just mentioned about rate and, and, and things we mentioned about volume, that's probably unique to the cardiac arrest patients. Mm. Other patients that you encounter, you may want to uh, achieve more of a physiologic uh, rate of ventilation, maybe a, even a physiologic volume of ventilation. 
but look at the patient in front of you and, and remember your goals. If you keep those goals in mind of oxygenation and ventilation and you continually reassess your patient uh, to make sure that you're actually achieving those goals, you'll find the right uh, place. So. so then I think also re- reflecting on the other patient population we just touched upon a second ago is sometimes also making the determination not to ventilate a patient can also be appropriate. And I think about, uh, I start thinking about our uh, overdose patients who have um, possibly taken too many narcotics. If they're oxygenating well, even if they have a low ventilatory rate that's lower than normal, if they're oxygenating well, it might be okay not to aggressively ventilate these patients. Because we want to we want to walk that careful line of not waking these patients up too fast and having them potentially become aggressive with us, and still making sure that they maintain adequate oxygenation. Yeah, you're right. So I think this is a population of patients that we've thought a lot about recently because of recent events in the news, either the loss of some very prominent pop culture icons or uh, the subsequent discussion that's occurred across the nation in that regard or even across our own state. Um, and I think it's important to reconcile that all of our providers, independent of, the lesson, of their level of, or scope of, of practice, end up having skill sets that are essential for these, these patients and the care of these patients. And you're right, Don, that you know, we, we are, our expertise begins at our ability to assess the patient's uh, needs. And, and certainly, again, when it comes to airway and breathing, we uh, begin that assessment and some of the, the bedrock of our assessment is regarding their, their oxygenation and ventilation status. And you're correct that even though they may be uh, relatively bradypneic or might have a lower rate, if they are maintaining themselves and they're maintaining their ability to oxygenate, um, then we're, we're, we're good. But I, I think this is a dynamic patient population. It's a patient population whose physiology may change for the better or for the worse over a period of time. And supplemental oxygen alone may be what they need as long as they are breathing spontaneously. Our, our, uh, our EMRs slash first responders, our EMTs, um, still have the ability to care for these patients should they be apneic or should they be more bradypneic than physiologically tolerable. In those situations, our, our ability to provide supplemental oxygen, uh, really good bag valve mouth seal ventilation with uh, adjuncts like OPAs and MPAs can be life-saving techniques. And that can be true not just for our EMRs and EMTs, but for our, our AEMTs and our paramedics. Again, Remember that our goal is to manage the airway, and management means that the patient's oxygenated, ventilated, and that there's, they're, they're, we're able to protect as best as we can their airway uh, from uh, aspiration. And remember that there's, there are lots of tools to do that. And a wise option is probably to start with the most basic tool and ad- advance your uh, therapies as necessary. For our EMTs and our EMRs, we have those th- those frontline tools in our in our toolbox, so employ them, and know that it's essential. Like we talked earlier about to reassess these patients, and if you are meeting your goals, uh, then I, I think that's it's fair to stop there. If you're not meeting your not, it's fair to hold at those initial entry level techniques such as BVM with adjuncts. But if you're not able to uh, meet those goals, it's, then it's time to initiate additional uh, therapies, which would require a different scope of practice. So I think to recap, I, I think we're, we're at a good place to tie this up, but I just really want to recap and, and touch on a few main points that Matt and I have really tried to put here, which is, one, BLS airway maneuvers are really the, the bedrock and foundation of, of airway management, and that 
a BLS provider with strong airway management skills can manage a significant number of patients. And the other piece to that, though, is making sure that no matter what the underlying physiologic process that occurred that has brought you to the point of managing this patient's airway is continuously reassess them and determine if you can either lower the amount of uh, care that you're needing to provide, whether it's moving from a, v- a BVM to um, a non-rebreather or moving the other way and determining that you need to engage higher license levels or an AEMT or a paramedic to come in and, and help augment the care that's already being provided. Excellent. So any questions about this uh, and these ideas, please contact um, uh, Don uh, through either the uh, ManyMS website, his email, or through the MEMS Ed website. If you're interested in um, some of the visual description of these techniques that we talked about, what we can do is post some of those pictures of this on um, the uh, on the uh, website actually uh, for you to review uh, as well. So let's change gears a little bit. So we talked about uh, airway breathing. We're going to move on to circulation. Or in this particular case, we're going to talk about the X of treatment. As the X as, of treatment. Yes, we're going to talk about the X. When we start talking about trauma care, the one of the late trends now is we talk about X A B C. Oh, so exsanguination. Yeah, or the March algorithm, right? So massive hemorrhage, airway, respiratory. Yes. Um, so yeah, so massive hemorrhage. So I, I think it's fair to say that um, we learn a lot in medicine from our military experiences, and we have learned a tremendous amount over the years about the management of, of massive hemorrhage or exsanguination. Many of those lessons have begun to permeate back to the states after our activities in Afghanistan and Iraq. I think it's fair to say that we've incorporated a lot of those ideas in our practices in EMS, and in particular at Maine EMS, some examples are the endorsement of tourniquet use and um, in the endorsement of hemostatic agent use. I recently got back from the National Association of EMS Physicians annual meeting, and at that annual meeting, I was part of a conversation about evidence-based guidelines. And during that conversation, we heard from Dr. Eileen Bulger, who is the lead author on a soon-to-be-released paper that is an evidence-based guideline for the uh, management of, of, of massive hemorrhage from the extremities. And got a little bit of insight into that. This, this paper has not been published, so we have to wait to get the final word. But from discussion with uh, or hearing her discuss this paper, I think it's a, it's a fascinating thing, and, uh, and we'll be sure to bring back the final version of this to you, but I think we've got enough information to kind of talk about the highlights. And one of the highlights is that uh, is endorsement of direct pressure. So direct, remember, the direct pressure performed adequately will be able to manage many of the wounds that we encounter. Even the massive exsanguinations, we may be able to manage with direct pressure alone. Now, the other key part here, though, is even if we can manage it, what else is going on in our world operationally that may draw us in a different direction? And can we manage it, this wound uh, with only direct pressure? Meaning, are there other things we may need to do? And so uh, direct pressure is the starting point. It's also the easiest thing to do. We all have hands. We can all put those hands on wounds while something else is being uh, readied for application. So first and foremost, direct pressure. Now, one of the things that came out of this was a widespread endorsement for the utilization of of tourniquets in EMS and the fact that these save lives. And I think that one of the things that is going to come out of this is uh, that endorsement, that these are important for EMS agencies to have. It's probably, they're probably important for other 
public safety providers who might be encountering patients suffering from massive hemorrhage to also have these. And I, I think specifically about police, but also non-EMS firefighters who may be in those situations as well. Um, and then as, as far as some of the other things, they looked at, is there recommendation on the type of tourniquet? Is there recommendation on improvised tourniquets? Is there a recommendation on hemostatic agents, and if so, what type? And and in hearing Dr. Bulger talk about this, I think it's fair to say that um, professional, professionally developed tourniquets trump non-professionally de- developed tourniquets. However, if you do not have a professional tourniquet, move to an improvised tourniquet. I would uh, ask Don to reflect on the work that he did around this this summer as the MDPB was attempting to dis- to put... Um, uh, necessary elements together for the purchase of tourniquets, we learned a little bit that maybe, Don, you'd mind sh- you wouldn't mind sharing with us. Yeah, I, I got tasked by Matt and a couple of the medical directors really wanted to look at, was there evidence surrounding tourniquets at the time, um, and were there any recommendations from any, any particular um, sources that had merit? And the, and the question was, what makes a good tourniquet? If we're going to invest in the, the technology, we should invest in something that works. What are the elements that uh, that can lead us with some certainty to say this this works and it does the job. Working with Matt and actually uh, with uh, John Kuister from Portland Fire, who was able to give us some insight as well um, from some of uh, the TCCC work that he does, we gathered a lot of information from the military, which was really the best uh, place to find evidence at the time. And we looked at a few studies. One was, was comparing uh, windlass-type tourniquets to for lack of a better term, rubber band type or some type of stretching device. And then we found another article that actually looked at pneumatic, ratchet, and windlass type tourniquets. And really what we came out of this is looking at cost, looking at ease of application, and success rates in actually stopping arterial bleeds. We actually came up with, a, with some criteria that's actually now you can find on the main EMS approved equipment list. Ultimately, what this all came down to was that windless type uh, or ratchet type device tourniquets that were commercially prepared had the greatest rate of success with the least amount of time to um, the stopping of the hemorrhage. So what the MDPB endorsed was actually looking at at tourniquets that were a minimum of an inch wide that use some type of mechanical advantage windless type device that they're latex free. Well, I think that uh, while Don's pulling that up to give you the final um, the final um, uh, criteria, it's important to know that the MDPB, when thinking about this, wanted to make sure that we were balancing uh, the devices that offered the best chance for survival, the best chance for the preservation of function, uh, minimized adverse effects. One of the biggest adverse effects, of course, would be ongoing hemorrhage. Uh, they were uh, at a good price point and they were easy to utilize, uh, meaning that there wasn't a, a huge uh, learning curve on how to use those. And in balance, when looking at these, he's exactly right, that the pneumatic device, sorry, that the ratcheting devices, um, especially the more recent generation ratcheting devices, and the windless devices seem to be that great balance point. And just to give you a little bit of an idea of price points, the um, rubber band or the stretching devices uh, are about half the price of the ratcheting or the windless devices and the pneumatic devices end up being about 10 times the cost of the ratcheting or the windless devices. And so from a cost-benefit standpoint, given that we, there seems to be superiority of the 
ratcheting and the um, windlass devices, and the price of those is less than pneumatic devices, which seem to be equal in their performance to the others. Though it was actually, the recommendation was that they were not good for out-of-hospital use yeah. because they were prone to, when they got bumped, dislodging yeah. from, their, their, from their placement. So f- with all those things in balance, we, we ended up recommending those two devices. And, and what I understand from hearing this talk is that is very similar to what the evidence-based guideline committee on external hemorrhage found as well. So the only other piece that actually we, we put in this recommendation um, in this is we actually did offer some guidance about some of the, the Gen fake, 1, yeah. Well, there were actually the, the Gen 1 ratcheting devices that had some problems, which have been corrected and are apparently, I've, I've not seen one at this time, but apparently work much better, as well as the imitation cat tourniquets that were oh, out yeah, there. Yeah. And, and that was, I, just briefly on that, there were some imitation devices made that were very prone to failure when they were applied with the amount of pressure that's actually necessary to tamponade an, an arterial bleed, especially in, in the leg. That information is on the approved equipment list. You can find that under the publications part of our, of our uh, website under approved equipment list. Yeah, and, and what, what Don was referencing there, we, 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 do, we do try very diligently not to endorse a specific vendor. Um, we did mention a vendor in this approved equipment list because this is a device that is very popular and there has been a significant number of folks who have stumbled across this fake device. Let me just give you some background here. So the device in particular is called the CAT or the Combat Applied Tourniquet. And this is one of the ones that the military um, picked up and has used quite extensively. The soft gun or the, um, what is it, the soft gun? The soft T? Nope, the soft oh, gun. Oh, the airsoft. The airsoft, I'm sorry. The airsoft community um, has picked up on the, 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 the way that the military operators look, uh, and they've modeled a lot of their, um, their look after that. And as part of that, many of the airsoft companies have put together these false or these uh, imitation or knockoff cat straps. And they're, uh, the one in particular, which is pretty um, commonly found on eBay or on Amazon, is made by an Asian company. And while the Asian company does not intend this to be used as a tourniquet, they look like the cat tourniquets, uh, and they are they're less than the cat tourniquets. So folks have inadvertently purchased these only to find them fail uh, because they're not made with the same rigor as the cat tourniquets. And we've got some guidance on how to tell the real from the false on the website as well um, around that. So I think talking about some of the uh, things that we've learned about tourniquet application are also is also really important. Matt has at times shared um, some experiences he's had actually accepting patients with tourniquets and some of the issues that he's seen with this. And and it's really important to remember that when you apply a tourniquet to a patient, it's going to apply a significant amount of force to that that individual's extremity. And with that, it's going to probably cause a significant amount of pain for most of these patients. As an EMS provider, I'm going to assume here for a moment that everyone else is like me. I don't generally enjoy causing pain to my patients. In fact, I'm usually there to try to make their day better, not worse. So (laughs) I think we have this innate desire to not cause pain. And the moment someone starts expressing discomfort from something we're doing, we're hesitant to continue that process. And it's important to note that Probably well before you actually cause tamponade of an artery, again, I'm going to go back to especially when you start thinking about like a femoral artery bleed, you're going to have to supply a significant amount of force to this, and you're really going to have to turn these devices down, and it's going to cause that pain. 
don't hesitate. You are doing what you need to do to save this person's life. And if they are in a significant amount of pain, this is an appropriate time to engage an ALS provider to come and try to provide pain management. But again, if you're closer to the hospital than you are to an ALS provider, unfortunately, this patient is probably going to have to experience some pain for yeah, so these are important tech. These are important ideas. That so um, the idea here is that you may have to apply a significant amount of circumferential pressure, proximal to the the uh, the wound to stop the bleeding, and that may or may not cause the patient pain, based on uh, wounding patterns, based on patient's pain threshold. Uh, but if it does cause pain, Don, Don's exactly right. Uh, attempt your best effort to get pain medications to the patient or get the patient to pain medications. Now, the important thing, though, is to keep your eye on the most critical step, which is the cessation of hemorrhage. And that, you know, just like we talked about in the airway section, the airway breathing section a little while ago, uh, we want to continually reassess these patients and make sure that our therapy has done its intended job. And the goal here is to stop hemorrhage. Um, what we know about hemorrhage is that it is essential to keep as much of the blood volume intravascular as possible. And more, the more of that that spills out onto your, uh, your cot or your ambulance floor, the worse it is for patients. So uh, really using these devices and using them appropriately is essential. And again, that might cause discomfort. And while this is a BLS tool and a BLS step in the protocols, we've added in some language there to consider calling ALS if pain occurs. So that's, that's I think, an important thing. Look on the website for some of those approved um, equipment, on the approved equipment list for some criteria. Switching, uh, switching around a little bit, we also understand that this um, guideline is going to include the use of hemostatic agents, which I'm really proud to say we've endorsed in Maine EMS since, I think it was 2008, as a matter of fact. I might have been before it that. may have actually i think it might have actually been in 2005 maybe yeah either 2005 or 2008 you know we've, we we continually learn about these devices um i think it's the the important take-home point on these devices is that they are not magic and that they must be combined with direct pressure that just the application of the of the uh of the device itself does not stop bleeding it's the application of the device in combination with pressure and i'm uh, we'll, we will come back to you with the rest of the uh, interventions described in this evidence-based guideline, but I would foreshadow some other things that are going to be uh, new to EMS providers. This will show, including the need to, uh, the way that these get applied. But again, not having it in front of us, it's hard to speculate. We'll have to bring that back to you. But suffice it to say for now that these hemostatic agents are applied with direct pressure. That direct pressure should be immediately over the bleeding or as close to the bleeding as possible with the device between your hand and the wound, and that uh, direct pressure should be applied for a minimum of five minutes, at which point you reevaluate, and if bleeding continues, reapply direct pressure for five minutes. If bleeding continues after that, swap out, take the old hemostatic agent out, put a new hemostatic agent on, and reapply direct pressure for five more minutes. Those are some of the, the, the learning points that Don and I wanted to share about hemorrhage control uh, in this. Anything to add? No, I think that I think it pretty well covers it, and I think this uh, this next topic is going to be an interesting one to discuss because this long predates either of us being involved in medicine. This long predates either of us being alive. To be honest with That's you, also true. <laughs>
So I just want to qualify this this next piece of the conversation and say that Don and I are planting seeds, and this is probably going to be the first of many conversations about the exact same topic coming up. But for those of you who listen to this, um, please um, know that this is an active uh, area of discussion across the nation. This is an active area of discussion within the MDPB, and it's one of the topic sets that we're planning on looking at for the 2015 protocol update. Uh, the topic in particular we're talking about is spine management, and as Don mentioned, some of the major uh, organizations have placed some guidances out there about spine management that uh, unfortunately came out after our uh, protocols went live in, in December. And just in the last couple of weeks, the resource document has been published for uh, this National Association of EMS Physicians and American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma recommendations for spine management. We thought what we'd do is we'd walk through that with you. Now remember, this is, uh, this is the first of lots of conversations. We're going to be talking very general, generally here. Our protocols are the protocols until they change, and that change needs to be thoughtful and deliberate. And in this case, because it impacts patients that are shared between multiple different levels of provider across multiple different parts of the healthcare spectrum, we want to make sure that what we do is is a consensus discussion and dialogue with the trauma system as a whole, and our mechanisms for doing that are through the Trauma Advisory Committee of Maine EMS. So right now, though, we want to talk about the history of spinal mobilization and the literature that we have to this point in time, and we want to kind of just give folks an understanding that things are going to change. Things have changed, and things will continue to change, but in spine management in particular, I I foresee this being a big change from the dogma that we used to have, meaning that everyone got placed on a backboard for transport. I think that's that part there is is, is probably in in uh, in flux right now. So Don, maybe we should start off by thinking about the history and how we got to where we are with backboards. Do you uh, you want to jump into that? Sure. As Matt and I both said already, that this has been around a long time, and I, and I think it dates back to somewhere right around 1962. Yeah, if, if 1960s, I, I think. You're yeah, right. it was it was early early mid 60s is, is when the first few papers about spine management kind of started to surface. And and to be honest, they really didn't involve very many patients. In fact, I think one of the first few studies that came out looked at two patients specifically, and said these patients were handled improperly, which is the reason they developed paralysis later. Yeah, and again, I think we talked about this concept of association and causality, meaning is it just because, is did they have a spine injury and were they handled inappropriately and is, were those causal to each other or were they just there at the same time? And right. I think there was a leap in faith that there was a causality there. Yeah, and and it's it's interesting because one of the patients had, if I remember correctly, a massive fracture of like T10, and that was right around the area where they developed their their paralysis, and it was speculated that it was the way that patient was handled rather than the fact that the vertebrae was actually compressing directly on the spine was the reason that this person developed this paralysis. It's a little interesting, that leap of faith that was kind of made there. That started in in the 60s, and then there were a few more papers that kind of came out about this. And then it was sometime around the 70s when, I think it was, again, I think it was the American, 
The first consensus paper on guideline, well, again, I say consensus paper. There was a guideline that came out from the an orthopedic group right? Um, that basically said all of these patients should be backboarded. And I, and I think it's fair to say that at that point in time in our history of medicine, we um, we didn't know what we know now about evidence-based medicine. We didn't know what we know now about the spine in particular. We didn't have the wealth of the information that we have about the spine in particular. And I think everyone who made these decisions at that point in time were well-intentioned and had patients in mind. But I don't think we had the same knowledge base in the 1970s that we do now, in the 2010s. I think also we can also reflect on the fact that pre-hospital um, education has really changed too. Mm. I, I mean, and that's not to say that back in the 70s and 80s people weren't actually receiving good education, but medicine's changed a lot, and that has affected the way we educate pre-hospital providers. Yeah. And and I would say that we probably know more about providing a neuroassessment today than we probably did in the 70s in the in the pre-hospital realm. Yeah, and so you know, I think all these things, these first couple case reports, the the uh, anecdotal evidence that was occurring at the time, the guidelines from this orthopedic group that came out, all kind of coalesced together, and we ended up putting lots and lots and lots and lots of patients on backboards. I think it's also interesting, though, when we reflect upon this, to actually think about our own state and think about our own history related to this, of that in the 70s and 80s, nationally, we started putting everybody on backboards. But then things changed in Maine, and we had the Nexus study that actually looked at the ability to identify patients and rule out patients who didn't need to be put on backboards. Yeah, so the Nexus study was in the 2000s, but we actually made our changes in Maine before that, right? It's, so, exactly. Yeah. And it's interesting because... Uh, we, we can actually thank uh, Dr. Peter Goth, who's a member of the MDPB, mm-hmm. put a lot of attention into this. And actually, when when did that change actually come about? That was I think it was the, it was in the mid to late 90s. I, I believe it was in 96 is when it was published. I, 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 I believe, you know, it, it's always been fun talking to Dr. Goth about this. And, you know, it really, Maine was on the forefront of some of those changes you know, those changes were being discussed at the national level. There are other, certainly others across the country who were talking about this. The National Association of EMS Physicians, even back then, um, had published a position paper around spine management. But it really was Maine that took the leap and applied this at a wide level to a large group of patients. And uh, we, owe, we owe that to Peter and his colleagues at that point in time. And I think it's it's really interesting that we're, we're, we're now in this, this flux of where um, a lot of people are spending a lot of attention looking at spine management. And we've been doing parts of this for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I think it, it's, as we start talking more about this, it's interesting to reflect that people have taken that next step to say, okay, so EMS can and has demonstrated an ability to assess these patients. Now the next step is, do we really put patients on backboards. Yeah. And I think that the important key here is that we began this process of putting people on backboards based on anecdote and it became dogma. And now the important pieces of this conversation for everyone to recognize is there is no published evidence that backboards improve patient care. And there is a wealth of information that suggests backboards 
may not just be uncomfortable, but could be dangerous. So what we know about backboards is number one, they are flat, and that is important because patients' spines are not flat. There's natural lordosis, and because there's natural lordosis at the lumbar and cervical spine, a flat, rigid board causes loss of that lordosis and cause, goes on to cause pain. Now, number two, because there is pain, that forces emergency providers in the hospital to consider the possibility of injury and leads to excessive radiography of these patients in the form of either plain films or CAT scans. Now, number three, not only are those boards flat, but they're also rigid and they're hard. And those hard boards cause uh, uh, pressure at certain bony prominences. And even after 30 minutes, uh, decreased blood flow can occur to those areas. And after hours, ischemia and skin breakdown in the form of ulceration can occur. Well, I think it's important that while you say that, it's also really important to reflect upon the fact that those hours that you refer to are in a generally healthy individual. Yes, exactly. In our elderly population especially, it can be that 30-minute window can can really set this, this ulcer into process. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think the final point is that these actually might be dangerous. So in patients suffering from trauma who have associated chest injury, um, laying a person down flat on a hard surface and then strapping them to that hard surface in the face of a chest injury can cause decrease in expansion and increased pain and decreased respiratory function. All those things altogether are becoming more and more accepted in the medical literature. And so I think that the final equation here is we have this practice that's become dogma. It's never been proven to be beneficial to patients, but has been proven to be harmful to patients. And so therefore, why are we applying it? And when I think about this, honestly, the first thing that comes to mind is that there have been other historical things in medicine that are that we've had similar experience with. And the the thing that comes to mind is bloodletting. Uh, and if you think back to the 1800s, medicine was very reactionary and not extremely scientific. Sorry, maybe not the 1800s, but well before that, in the, in the long ago times, medicine was non-scientific and reactionary. And there was this thought that illness was related to evil humors. And how do you get rid of the evil humors? You let it out of the blood. And so there was a practice of bloodletting. Some folks use leeches and I think what happened was that we became more aware of what was happening to patients and we realized that our therapies were actually harmful and not beneficial and we stopped doing them. Um, And I think that what we're learning is that the evidence in, uh, in favor of using backboards is not present. The evidence toward the detriment of backboards is, is mounting. And what this is causing people across the country to do is to reconsider the correct application of a backboard. And what the MDPB is doing is something very similar. We're walking through this process to ask ourselves, what is the role of backboards in EMS? I I happen to be involved in the Pediatric Evidence-Based Guideline State Utilization Survey, otherwise known as Pegasus. And the Pegasus process is something that Don and I have talked about before. In brief, Pegasus is attempting to create evidence-based pediatric guidelines using the national EMS evidence-based guideline, uh, utilize, uh, evidence-based guideline process, and then to deploy those throughout six, our six New England states, so Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts. And um, one of the protocols we're looking at is spine management. 
And it's really interesting to look at this literature very critically and realize that there is not a lot of literature that supports the utilization of backboards. And as I mentioned before, there is mounting evidence to suggest that they could be harmful. And so our obligation then becomes uh, uh, to be, becomes to, to consider how these should be used if they're used at all. Now again, this is not intended to be a conversation that changes your practice yet. That the practice change happens through our protocols as we um, uh, kind of ruminate about this and as we build consensus about this around the state. But I, Don and I wanted to bring this to you because you, you have probably heard about this in your own circles. You've probably had friends who've talked about this within your own circles. And the reality is that uh, things are changing. And this is a big change because it, it really strikes some of the common practices we've all employed in putting, back, putting many patients on backboards. And so think about this. If you're interested in any of these resource documents, we will post a link in the, uh, in the uh, MEMSED site for you to look at them yourself and get a chance to read these. And, uh, and also uh, be a part of the conversation uh, as, the, um, as these protocol changes arise. We'd, we'd ask you to keep, uh, keep engaged, keep involved, keep reading the website for updates, review these changes as they come out. Be in, if you're interested in being involved in the conversation, we'd, we'd enjoy that with you. Um, we would like uh, your input as we move forward. I think it's also important in, in this intermediate time. The MDPB for a long time has endorsed the main spinal rollout. And we know that there are providers out there that, you know, there, there's always been this theory of uh, litigation that everyone's always worried that the lawyer's going to show up knocking on their door and saying, you didn't put them on a board. But it's really important that we take the time to actually rule these patients out if we can. If, if it's not, if they don't need to be on a backboard, and we can demonstrate that through this proven process, then utilize that process and don't put them on a board. Do you have any other thoughts before we uh, wrap this up? No, I don't. Um, I just uh, We appreciate your comments. Please uh, keep those coming. Also, your uh, frequently asked questions. If you, as an engaged person listening to this website, has a question, I can almost guarantee that others across the state have the same question. We'd like to answer those for us. And we're also interested in your ideas about future topics. Um, Don and I, just to foreshadow what we've been talking about, are really interested in, in um, collecting some of the uh, progenitors of our EMS system and getting them all in one room and talking to them about the history of main EMS and how we got from the 1960s and 70s to where we are today. And so we're looking back to some of the former and current leadership of main EMS to really try to capture some of that history. I think it'd be kind of neat to have that in some uh, format as a legacy for those who come be behind us. And it, it looks like we have access to probably at least four of our uh, previous um, main EMS directors and our current Jay Bradshaw. Mm -hmm. um, and we're, we're like Matt said, we're going to try to pull all the all these uh, individuals together into one room and uh, just kind of see what happens. Yeah, it'll be interesting. So keep your uh, Keep, keep your eyes open for that. And, again, we'd also be interested in your, uh, your comments and your, uh, your uh, topics of interest, too. Again, please send those to us either through the website, through um, MEMS Ed, or through uh, Don's uh, email. And I guess with that, uh, we say uh, goodbye and thank you. I hope you enjoyed this. Stay safe. Take care.